Good morning, noon or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you're listening to The Shift. I have uh, some special content for you now. This is a episode of the Thursday Morning Report. This is a project that I worked on in conjunction with Mendocino County Public Broadcasting here in Northern California oh, a few years back, but I uh, had some legendary conversations and I am going to put this out just to add some more free content onto the internet for those of you who are interested in my style. Uh, as you may have heard, I am kicking in the shift now with subscription memberships at $6 a month. So if you want to catch the full-length interviews from now on, the new stuff that I'm producing, that's going to be behind a paywall. I will be uh, in adding the first half of the full-length interviews uh, onto the RSS feed here on your favorite podcast hoster site. Uh, but if you want to hear the whole episode, then please go to www.theshiftnow.com and uh, click on that subscribe button. For $6 a month, you'll get the full-length feature interviews that I'm starting to produce, uh, at least 50 a year, almost four per month. I'm giving myself a couple of weeks off, and you'll also be added to our members-only discussion forum. I'm working on putting together a community app that work, will work as sort of a social media group for uh, all of the members of the Shift family. So please contemplate thinking about doing that. There will be more members' content as well as free content on the way. I have decided to dedicate to this project uh, looking to monetize and make a living, uh, but also to spread the word and help organize our community to combat what apparently seems to be coming here in the near future with this current COVID crisis. A lot of changes are happening, and I am really feeling the need to work together as a community to uh, create an organized front so that our voices can be heard, as well as those voices that aren't being heard in the mainstream media. So you'll be hearing a lot more from me here in the near future. And in the meantime, please enjoy this free content produced at KZYX in Mendocino County, uh, the Thursday Morning Report. Thanks again. Take care. It's time for the Thursday Morning Report. I'll be your host. My name is Doug McKenty. Uh, I'm speaking this morning with Catherine Austin Fitz. She is the publisher of the Solari Report and uh, an ex-undersecretary of uh, Housing and Urban Development under the first President Bush. Uh, let me just take a moment here to say support for the Thursday Morning Report uh, comes from our members and from University of the Pacific McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, whose 13,000 alumni are practice-ready and prepared to make a difference locally and globally. More information is at mcgeorge.edu slash ready. Uh, Catherine, are you there? Yes, I am. Excellent. Um, why don't we just take a few minutes uh, and allow yourself to introduce yourself and um, discuss uh, what you're doing with the Solari Report right now. Okay, well, I... Um I am an investment advisor, and the way I became an investment advisor was in the 90s. I was uh, forced by litigation with the federal government to go public about the corruption mm -hmm. and what was happening, and everybody came to me and said, oh, my word, what, does, you know, what should I do? How do I position my family, my assets? You know, how, how do I change the, the practical day-to-day -day management of what I do to protect myself from this? So... Uh, I kind of backed into being an investment advisor, and what happened was everybody kept saying in response to all the new, you know, AMF Global happens, oh, what does this mean? 
And finally, I realized I couldn't just, you know, have this conversation hundreds of times a week. I had to standardize it. And so we started to publish the Solera report both for the clients and for the just our, our general network on, on our take about what was going on. And we have a blog, um, and then we do a bridge call uh, uh, every Thursday night, and we cover money and markets. Then we cover, it's called Ask Catherine, so I get lots of questions about, you know, what about this, what about that. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, and then we do an in-depth interview on a subject that we think is important to building family wealth, and by family wealth I include everything, you know, well-being, health, just everything about family wellness. And, um, and then we do something called Let's Go to the Movies, because one of the things I found is that, you know, Hollywood tells you everything that's going on. Uh, you just have to know which part of which movie to watch. And so I tend to use movies, and, of course, now with the explosion and wonderful documentaries, documentaries to help people understand. And, um, and what's amazing is I have really found that people, when they can withdraw from the sort of the lies and the, and the propaganda that you're getting in the corporate media and get a really good framework on what's going on, it, it, it can unleash tremendous energy and they get very, very productive. So um, the Solari Report is really designed to help sort of filter and organize um, the news and particularly the deeper news uh, as it relates to your assets in a way that helps you take action because that's what we're, our goal is that subscribers really build forward and have a good life despite the environment and right. having to run the gauntlet. So that's really what I do. I, I, I'm trying to figure out what's going on and how to make sure that the, our subscribers and readers and clients, you know, jump the curve on the situation. Well, um, uh, there were two things that I really liked about the Solari Report. Uh, first of all, can you tell me where you got the name? Oh, well, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just story. curious. We, you know, I, I named the company Solari when I had started an investment bank in Washington in, um, in the 90s, and I had wanted to call it Solari, and all my partners thought that that was not a very, you know, it didn't pass the real man test. It was too girly. Ah, I see. <laughs> so we, we named Hamilton Securities right. uh, Hamilton after Alexander Hamilton, who had been the first secretary of the Treasury, and, and, uh, and Hamilton was supposed to be the one... Uh, uh, the organization, what we're trying to do is figure out how we could get communities financing privately and withdrawing for government money and get out of the central control. And so we're basically trying to free communities financially. And, um, and so Hamilton's job was to sort of get in the trenches and figure out what was going on and build the software and databases. And then Solari, which was a separate company, was supposed to then um, do the investment management and, and the investing that would come out of sort of a, a new way. And, um, and so we had that on and on and on. And then when, when I shut down Hamilton, Solari became sort of the, um, the watchword. And, and I had something called the Solari model, which is my vision of how we, you know, we need a new model of how we organize uh, money on planet Earth. We've, for 500 years, we've been in something called the central banking warfare model. And the central banks print money, and then the military <laughs> makes sure everybody uses it. Right. And so the question is, that model clearly is getting uglier, 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 and it's getting less and less productive. I mean, the, the economic productivity of the current model is just deteriorating in front of our eyes. And so the question is, was in the 90s and still is, you know, what's the new model? And so I had a model called the Solari model. And so when the report, when, when this bridge call came along, we kept trying to come up with a name, and we said, well, we'll just call it the report. 
the Salieri report. So, um, uh, you know, I love the notion. I had a dear, dear friend who used to always say when she was, you know, when she came back from something exciting, she'd say, I have a report for you. Uh. <laughs> so, so I love the expression of, you know, report. Well, there are two things about the Solari Report that really jumped out at me, and one is um, this, the holistic vision that you have where, where it really is about building family and community and not just uh, about accruing wealth, but I, I think maybe the term is abundance, really helping people right. to, to have a great uh, you know, family and community life as well. Uh, and the other thing that really strikes me about your work on the Slayer Report is, is the just the realistic view of what, as you've developed over time, of what is actually going on. Uh, you know, as I was reading your stuff over the last couple of weeks, uh, I, I was just amazed at how you seem to have figured out the system and what's actually happening. Um, can you describe your experiences as the Undersecretary of the Housing and Urban Development yeah, my t- actually, my title was Assistant Secretary of Housing, Federal okay. Housing Commissioner. So mm-hmm. it's the person who oversees the mortgage uh, insurance operations and, and regulation at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And it's absolutely critical to the healthy operation of the mortgage market because the, the federal government is such an enormous player in the, in the mortgage market, and I would say really controls the mortgage market. Right. Um, it's a very sort of... Uh, you know, we talk the, about free markets. There's no free markets going on in the United States. Yeah. But and the mortgage market is a perfect example. Anyway, what happened was I came in, and, um, and the, at that time, FHA was losing a great deal of money in violation of the requirements by law. They're, the big single-family operation is required by law to, to operate on a self-supporting basis. And it clearly wasn't. We were losing $11 million a day. And what was very interesting, I came in, and I the first thing I did was I called in. I said, you know, who's our chief financial officer? And they said, we didn't have one. I said, okay, well, who's the budget officer? And they brought the budget in. And I said, okay, I need, I need all the finances because I need to understand how we're doing compared to the law. You know, my first job was to say, okay, what am I legally responsible for? So he brought in all the budgets, and they went all the way from the floor to the ceiling. I mean, it was just thousands and thousands right. of pages, including the... The justifications. Well, we had we had a we were originating fifty to one hundred billion a year, and we had a portfolio at that time of about three hundred twenty billion. This is a lot of stuff. And um, anyway, so I, I'm a speed reader. I read the whole thing four times, speed yeah. reading, looking for something that would indicate whether or not we were complying with the law. So I called back on Monday and I said, "Look, I can't figure out, or you know, if we're making or losing money anywhere in these these documents." He said, "Oh, well, that's not in the budget." And I said, well, where is it? He said, well, the accountants have that information. I said, well, give me their name. I, I need to talk to them. He said, oh, they report to another assistant secretary. You're not allowed to talk to them. Wow. <laughs> so I said, well, that's going to change because I'd raised a lot of money for the campaign. And so I lobbied the White House. And, and I always said what I got in exchange for all that effort was I got a pair of presidential cufflinks and the accountants moved over to report to me. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so the accountants get over, and what I discover is in the single-family fund we're losing $11 million a day. So I said, look, all real estate is local. I need We have 80 field offices, and in 10 federal, it's six now, but it was 10 then, I said in 10 federal regions, I need to give the field office managers and the regional administrations direction on what they do. 
so I need to see this by place. They said, oh, we don't keep information by place. I said, look, right. we mail out checks. We have zip codes. This is an emergency. I want to see an estimation by cash flow of where we're making and losing money because I'm required by law to make sure under the FHA fund this commissioner has sole fiduciary responsibility. So there's, you know, there's nobody else. You're accountable. Anyway, so, so they come back in a couple months, and it turns out that we are making money in eight regions and losing all that money in two regions. Now, this is 1989. Can you guess where we're losing our money? Hmm. Where? The biggest loser was Region 6, which had both Arkansas, a.k.a. the Clintons, and Texas, hmm. a.k.a. the Bush. Yep, yep. <laughs> Right. So I called the I called the regional administrator and I said, "How much do you think you made or lost last year?" He said, "Oh, I think we, you know, I think we probably broke even." I said, "No, you lost over a billion dollars. I'm sending you the figures and I'm flying down tomorrow." Wow. <laughs> and well, but what was interesting by the time I got there, Doug, he had taken everybody in the back room, figured out exactly what they had to do, you know, and they were doing it. They were perfectly competent. But it showed you the power of having good financial information and what i discovered throughout the federal government is if you if you were to go if you and i were to get on the web and go to the white house budget office we would get the budget or we would get the financials and it would show here's how the money worked in transportation or here's how the money worked in um uh you know in housing or here's how the money worked in military but it would never show you the budget contiguous to the world that you vote for political representation in and which you walk around and know and understand because you're living there. Mm -hmm. And that's what you need in a democracy. If I'm going to vote for a legislator, then I need to, a senator or a congressman, I need to see a sources and uses of government resources. And so uh, when I left the Bush administration, I said, look, this place-based thing is unbelievably important. We as citizens need this information. And if we, if we have this information, we can stop all the fraud. Because the fraud was unbelievable. I mean, it was just off the charts, and well, that's why I had to leave. Let's talk about the fraud. What, okay. what did you discover? Uh, and the first thing I wanted to say, too, so what you're saying here is that the when you go into a government agency, they basically never balance their books. I mean, they literally, because there's... Uh, not a lot of oversight and not a lot of transparency are, are getting away with not having to uh, show where no, the money I, I don't, is going and what's going on. I don't think that's. I, I think enough people have spent enough time trying to fix it. Mm -hmm. Th this is an institutionalized system. In other words, the the uh, I was part of a group of people in the Bush administration who got laws passed requiring audited financial statements by the agencies. To this day, and that re requirement kicked in in 1995, to this day the federal government has never produced audited financial statements. And in fact, what we know is from the time they tried to 2002, there was $4 trillion missing that we've been able to find, and we haven't done a complete check of all the covered agencies. So, um, you know, it, it, in, the, in the private sector, if a private corporation can produce audited financial statements, they can't raise capital publicly. They get in trouble with their bank. There's all sorts of problems. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the challenge is that the federal government can continue to borrow money in the capital markets and, and maintain high ratings uh, and, and enjoy liquidity all over the world without basic financial management, you know, that is, I, I won't even say respectable, just basic. Right. Now, the fact that they can do that means that they can proceed to finance trillions of dollars of what I call the black budget. I think, I think what's happened over many, many years is we've evolved a system where we're financing 
literally private armies and space programs out the back door um, without any transparency. And the problem is the 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 public is or the the sovereign government is paying the expenses, whether it's in Iraq uh, and Iran or the the private budget, black budget, and then private investors pick up the benefits, and there's no transparency or public accountability. One of the interesting things that came up for me as, as I was reading uh, um, last week was the, the power the executive branch seems to have gotten. I mean, they have, they have managed to accumulate uh, billions and billions of dollars uh, that they don't have to go to Congress and ask for the money, which is in the Constitution. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the Exchange Stabilization Fund? Right. And how, how the executive branch has gotten access to so much money that they really don't have to ask Congress anymore if they want to pull these, these black operations, et cetera. Well, the, if, you, if you look at how they're financing the black budget, and I should just say nobody, this is a, this is a topic on which I've found uh, for decades it's very hard to get reliable information. So a lot of what I'm going to say is my best estimate. But mm-hmm. um, the, the Exchange Stabilization Fund, I feel, is the most important kind of slush fund for the, for the black budget operations. But there are many others, including at HUD, because the mortgage operations are very important and dovetail into the ESF. The Exchange Stabilization Fund is a fund that was created. It is uh, a fund within the purview of the Secretary of the Treasury, so it's legally a federal fund. And, um, but it is not managed by the line employees of the Department of Treasury. And, of course, that's a, a problem and a theme we see repeated throughout government. But it is managed on behalf of the Secretary of the Treasury by the New York Fed. So the New York Fed member banks presumably act as the agents for the ESF. And so you have J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, blah, 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 presumably operating with the full faith and credit of the federal government to intervene in the financial markets in ways which are secret. And, and they have, and then these private banks, these bankers that you're talking about, have access to this huge fund of money that's, that's so large that they can literally affect uh, the price of gold, the power of the dollar internationally, and then use it for whatever other things they want, black operations, etc. Right. Now, let's look at the double bind in this, because, because if you look at what they're probably doing in the ESF, Mm-hmm. Um, they are probably doing things that uh, dramatically improve the financial situation of the United States and most of the people here. Okay, so for example, uh, Jim Norman has a wonderful book, The Oil Card, where he talks about using the oil price to uh, engage in economic warfare with China, Russia, and countries around the world. And so, what we've seen is an evolution of warfare out of physical warfare and into financial warfare using critical resources to do it. So, for example, one of the greatest financial, uh, I don't want to say blessings because I'm not sure I, I like what's happened, but right. one of the greatest financial benefits to the average American has been the dollar, has been the reserve currency, and that has brought tremendous wealth into this country, which has, in fact, trickled down. And, and one of the reasons that we have been the reserve currency and can control that position is because we control the trade in oil, okay? Yeah. And so our ability to control the trade in oil and keep the oil price way above where a market price would be um, has, you know, has brought many, many blessings in many, many ways. Um, and that's, 
you know, and that's possible because we control that asset. And, you know, without that, the dollar could not maintain its reserve currency status, you know, and it's all caught up with having the military and controlling the satellites and sea lanes. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, so it's a double bind. If you're, if you're the bullion bank having to manipulate the... So, so, so oil is one example. In the 90s, what we saw was we saw a huge shift of capital out of, um, out of the United States and the first world. But basically, we bubbled the economy by... By, by having a housing bubble and a debt bubble and pressing the gold price down. And, and as we did that, we shifted capital out that was priced at a high, and we smashed down other economies, whether it was Russia or East Asia, and bought in cheap. So I bubble the money I'm moving out. I get a high price as I move out. I smash that. So I buy in at 10 cents on the dollar. Well, that produced enormous wealth and subsidies back to the you know, through the investment vehicles in the first world. And, and you know, so, so you watch those kind of movements, and what, what these guys are using with the ESF, I believe, is, you know, they're engineering um, movements that include things that are done in the quote-unquote national interest or the cartel interest, because it, it ends up being groups of nations doing it. And, um, and if you look at most citizens, you know, they want those benefits. So now what they're also doing is that we've reached a point where the markets are being used for economic warfare so much that they've literally stopped functioning as things we, we feel comfortable with to just engage in transactions or day-to-day investments. And I think there's a real question here. Are we going to use financial markets to play war? Are we going to use financial markets to get the day-to-day business of the economy done? Right. I mean, it seems to me that these shenanigans, though, perhaps it does help the average American to a certain extent, but it certainly uh, centralizes power in the hands of the few people who control this banking cartel. Isn't that true? Right. Well, the, the pro- here's the problem. If you, if you look at our model, we're using war and organized crime to centralize the global economy. First of all, we're, we're, you know, we're using, we're shifting our military globally. We've made a decision, or America has made a decision, to basically not be a sovereign nation and to be a global empire. Now, that's been evolving steadily that, in that direction for 50 years. But now we're, we've become much more overt with moving the military globally. And part of that is as you shift the investment out, nobody puts money where you can't enforce. And so as we've shifted the investment out, it's the satellites and control of the sea lanes that makes it possible to, in, to enforce. And so, so that process has been going on, but it has absolutely stretched the economic model because, in fact, um, it's very, very expensive. If you look at what we're spending globally or in America on military and arms and all these things, it's, it's extraordinary. And if you look at the cost um, to uh, just if you go into any county in America and you look at the cost of the mortgage fraud and the, and the narcotics trafficking and other sort of illegal activities that I believe finance the black budget, it's had a devastating impact on economy, on small business, and on the quality of community life. People are, people are deeply afraid. And it's funny, I used to, every time I'd publish an article in the black budget, I'd get all sorts of backlash saying, you know, why are you going into this? We don't need to go into this. And, um, and what I said is, look, in 3,100 counties in America, the soccer moms are not allowed to move the drug dealers out because the drug dealers are financing James Bond 
And every time they back right. them out, the next thing you know, they got black helicopters on their heads. So we need to talk about this because, you know, even though that leads into a whole bunch of conversations that are not socially acceptable, we have an entire planet deeply dependent on destroying the fundamental civic and financial capital in communities. Okay, I need to take a second here to tell everyone it's 924. For those of you who are just joining us, this is the Thursday Morning Report here on KZOAX. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. I'm speaking with Catherine Austin Fitz, the publisher of the Solari Report this morning. All right, Catherine, let's go back then and uh, go ahead and let you finish your story about the, the fraud that you encountered at Housing and Urban Development, and then we can get into uh, some of the other things you discovered after that. Oh, well, there's so many stories. Right. <laughs> I finally, my attorneys, when I was in litigation, asked me to record all of my experiences in the Bush administration, and I put all but sort of the worst stories down, and we eventually made six tapes, and they're up on the web. You can get them on the web. They're called the Kemp Tapes. Um, but, for example, w one of my most shocking was the coinsurance story. I was... Um, I was uh, the uh, first month I was there, we had a program called coinsurance where private mortgage brokers would would uh, insure um, loans for apartment buildings, mortgages for apartment buildings. And so this was federal credit that was being allocated, awarded by private guys. Anyway, um, a guy comes to me, one of my deputies, and he says, I need you to look at this portfolio. And it was a coinsured lender who had, in three and a half years, he had put out $420 million in mortgage insurance. Now, each one of these deals had, had 18 to 36 months of capitalized interest. And after three and a half years, he already had an 18% default rate, which is, you know, how you do that without, <laughs> without pure fraud, I don't know. Right. And so I, I got dragged into a meeting with 30 people on the staff, and, and I said, look, so we're going to lose 50 cents on the dollar. So for every dollar you originate, we're going to lose nine cents now. Well, it turned out ultimately the default rate was 50%. So, in fact, you were going to lose m much more than that. I think they ended up losing 50% on the dollar in the portfolio. And I said, not only does the government lose 50 cents on the dollar, but you destroy neighborhoods. When you have a project going to default in a neighborhood, it destroys the property values. There's all sorts of problems on the neighborhood, the community. So this is like a lose-lose. And, and the, what they wanted me to do was approve, illegally approve, a loan to the co-insurer so we could keep making loans. And I said, why, why would I do that? Right. I shut this guy down. So and what? just to uh, clarify, the, a project would be a, a housing project or something like that that they start a, to would, build and then it goes into default? or Yeah, it would be an apartment building. Mm -hmm. So you build an apartment, you build a new apartment building, and then it goes into default and it doesn't get properly managed and... You know, there are all sorts of things that can go wrong when you have defaults in a community. Right. And so, uh, so I said, why would I keep this guy going? And finally, one of the guys who was more courageous said he's a major Republican donor. Uh -huh. And I said, look, I'm a major Republican donor. And I pulled out my presidential cufflinks. I said, you get cufflinks. You don't get $420 million in federal credit. <laughs> and, and they looked at me like I was the stupidest woman on the planet. <laughs> like she has no clue. And I said, shut this guy down. Right now, shut him down. So I walk back to my office, and when I tell you this was four minutes, maybe, I, get a, I pick up the phone, uh, and it's the chief of staff to the senator in the state that this co-insured lender is. So he says, how dare you shut this guy down? Now, how he knew in four minutes is pretty scary. Wow, yeah. So, so I, said, I said, so his name, I'll 
to say his name was Harry. I said, Harry, let, let me tell you something. And this was completely a bluff, but it worked. I said, Harry, you don't know me, but I just uh, came to Washington. I was, a, I was a partner of a Wall Street firm. It's the firm chaired by the guy who's now the Secretary of Treasury, Nick Brady, and I'm on the board of Wharton. I have an MBA from Wharton, and I've looked at this portfolio, and I know that uh, if you, I said, I know who your senator is, and he's a man of extraordinary integrity and great reputation, and I know that, that if you had seen the portfolio I've just seen and you knew the details of what's going on, you would be very happy to know that I'm never going to tell anybody your name or the name of the senator and that you made this call. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is a bluff. I'm going to get killed. And there was a long silence, and he said, "Oh, thank you, thank you." <laughs> and he hung up. So wait, it gets better. Mm-hmm. Five minutes later, bam! I get a buzz on the hotline. You have a hotline from you to the secretary and other political pointies. He says, "Get your blank blank up to my office." Right, he's furious. So I get up there, and he's called in all sorts of people, and he says, "How dare you shut this guy down?" Wow. And I, I said this. Guy, you know, is a is a criminal, blah blah blah, and it went on from there. And needless to say, um, the reality is that portfolio was nine billion dollars of mortgage insurance. We had a fifty percent default rate, and um, and the fraud in that portfolio just could have made you. I think what they were doing was just doing phony deals, defaulting them, and just taking the money for the black budget. Huh. And uh, it's funny because because it was during that was Iran Contra. That was an Iran-Contra portfolio. Right, wow. And Oliver North at the White House, one guy once told me that Oliver North said that HUD was the candy store of covert revenues. In the multifamily, the, the, not the general, the, it's called the general fund where the multifamily is done, there's no requirement by law that they be self-supporting. In fact, all the money they lose, uh, a net bill gets created at the end of the year and Congress has to fund it. So it's like a put to Congress with no transparency. And it's a perfect place to play all sorts of games. Well, the, you know, what happened was after I left the Bush administration, I came back to, um, uh, or I started a company, Hamilton Securities, and a couple years later we got hired back on competitive bid to be their financial advisor. And sure enough, we ended up, um, the, it was that portfolio that haunted me because the guy who'd been hired to service, who was a real sleazebag, ended up, um, suing me for years, and that's what sort of originated the problem because we right. cleaned out that portfolio, and of course, there are a lot of powerful interests that didn't want it cleaned out. Right. So it was funny that the HUD, uh, when we started working with HUD, and that with that hat on, HUD had a huge default rate and a huge, a very low recovery rate relative to the industry, and we got it up to be a, a very high recovery rate. Well, of course. What that meant was you had a whole bunch of private guys making money through the back door, and we shut that off. And of course, that was not very popular. So, so that's uh, let's go on to that that idea of of what is privatization then, because I get this a lot. Um, people perceiving that when the government hires something out to a corporation, then that's that's privatization. It, it sounds a little bit more like fascism to me. Well, but, I call it piratization. Mm-hmm. So, so let's say an asset is worth a hundred dollars. Right. And the government owns it, and the government sells it for $100. That's privatization. If a government sells it to a private guy for $10, that's piratization. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's all around price. Okay, so, and they also do this by the extension of federal credit, too, though, right? Because the government just basically has an unlimited amount of credit they can give to these, 
these private companies, and so they're just doling out the money left and right. Is that correct? Well, it's, in one sense, it's unlimited in that they can create it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not unlimited in the sense that when you create it and put it out, it has real financial ramifications for everybody else. So it debases right. the value of the currency. It can debase and sort of twist up the financial markets and the credit markets in a way that's unbelievably expensive for the productive guys. And it's, it's almost like you look at economy and you've got, you've got sort of heroes and slugs and you're giving, you're giving money and constantly creating, uh, making the slugs more powerful and draining the heroes. Mm-hmm. So you've described housing and urban development as a slush fund. Can you tell, uh, just um, define what a slush fund is for, for our audience just so we get a, a concise definition? A, a slush fund is a fund that is used to, um, to secretly finance or qu- quietly or secretly finance things um, uh, without tight control or accountability. And uh, how does this apply to housing and urban development? Uh, what's going on there? And uh, you can get into uh, the narcotics trafficking, et cetera. Is it, is it a way to then launder money? You right. can launder I, money through my, a slush fund. What I believe is that a lot of the HUD programs and, uh, and the mortgage financing was being used to launder money. So, for example, and, and of course the financial engineering gets brain-dead complicated, but Let's say I, uh, I bring in $100,000 of, of, or I get $100,000 of drug sales in a community, and so now I've got $100,000 of cash. Say I buy uh, a single-family home, a foreclosed single-family home, and I do some slapdash rehab, and then I turn around and sell it for $250,000 to what's called a straw buyer, um, and I use FHA mortgage insurance to finance it. Okay, so I put in 100, I get out 250, say I have 20,000 in bribes, so now I've got, I've got 130,000 profit, but I've, my money's been washed because it came from a real estate sale. Mm-hmm. Now, the guy who, the straw buyer who bought it just defaults on the mortgage. It goes back into the FHA inventory, and then I do it again. Right, so you okay, can buy it again. And so you're saying that this happens with HUD properties that have been defaulted upon. When I was the commissioner, we found neighborhoods in Chicago, where, you know, Chicago, you know Chicago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where, where houses That's where Obama comes from. Right. Houses <laughs> would literally default five times a year. I thought, how can a house oh, wow. default on an FHA mortgage five times a year? <laughs> right. That's a remarkable speed. Now, let me show you how, how you make more money out of this, Doug. If, if, you, if you take that straw buyer and instead of doing one mortgage, you just create 10 mortgages, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and if you keep doing this, you can get enough money. So you create a mortgage pool with, with say, 100 mortgages on 10 houses. And, um, and if you keep doing this, you can pay the debt service. So instead of me getting, you know, 100000 washed and 130000 in profit, I can get $3 million in profit if I just create 10 phony baloney mortgages and the money, you can play this game because the money keeps being siphoned out the back door of the single-family fund. Mm-hmm. The single-family fund at the time was a, a mutual mortgage insurance fund, so the premiums profits were supposed to go back to the people who'd used the insurance. Well, this is a way of skimming it off for something else. Right. Yeah. 
Okay, well, uh, the time is 9.35. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX. I'm speaking with Catherine Austin Fitz this morning. We're talking about uh, what's going on in the financial markets. Uh, and actually, uh, uh, the conversation is really about uh, the massive amounts of corruption that seem to be going on. Do you find that uh, the, this drug money is, is, I mean, it, how much is the government involved? I mean, it, it's not just drug dealers. Is the CIA doing this? You know, are they, I, are I they think, doing this so they can fund uh, their black operations, et cetera? I, I think um, my guess is that, that this is a very basic operation within, um, within the black budget. And so it certainly touches the ESF fund. It certainly touches the mortgage fund. When I was Assistant Secretary of Housing, you know, I was Assistant Secretary of Housing for a year, for 18 months, and then I left, and when I was finally forced to start researching the drug business, I kept saying, how could this all be going on in me as the commissioner not know? And what I was finally able to figure out was how few people needed to be involved to really understand what was going You know, you had Mm -hmm. a covert side of the house, you had an overt side of the house, and the overt side of the house could really operate. And one of the reasons I did the Kemp tapes and all the research was to go back and unpack sort of how it had been going on without me or a lot of other people on the overt side being able to see it day to day. Um, but it can. But I think they're intimately involved because those cash flows are very important. And let, me, let me just step back. When I was on Wall Street and when I was initially in Washington, I just didn't think the drug business was that important because if you look at profitability, Financial fraud is much, much more profitable, and all sorts of other things with government money is much more profitable than drugs. And I just didn't see the importance of drugs until I left and went, moved to Tennessee and lived in a little, neighbor, uh, in a little farming community in West Tennessee. And I saw the, the extent to which drugs are really used to control a place with the place's own money. So it's literally a lot leveraged buyout of a community or a country. I mean, if you look at how we've gone into Latin America or other countries. Sure. You can really think about a, the opium wars. It's right. been going on for a long time. Right. And the opium wars are the great start because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the Chinese were out trading the Brits until the Brits finally said, okay, well, let's go to opium. <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, you have a, a vehicle to do a leverage buyout of a neighborhood and get political control at their expense and that political control in 3,100 counties is what then gives you the political control you need to control the, the governmental mechanisms, which are so rich. And so the drug business is very important. And, um, and of course, in terms of the impact on the human quality and on the devastation of the small business economy, it's extraordinary. So it's, it's very big money, and it's, um, you know, I'll, I'll be blunt. If you look at the money laundering statutes, uh, uh, you know, the, the easiest way to launder drug money is through government accounts. Let me just mention one other thing. I was in 2001, I was in a money laundering conference in Miami, and a woman from Treasury and the Department of Justice from FinCEN came and spoke. And so I asked her, what are the rules uh, related to preventing money laundering with, with the federal credit? Because the federal credit is the perfect place to, you know, including the mortgage credit to launder. And um, she said, not only do I not know the answer to your question, I don't know the answer. I don't know. I don't understand your question well enough to even go get the answer. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, that's not good. I went into the <laughs> fair where they had people who were expert in money laundering regulations and had all the software to help you get and understand money laundering re- regulations. So I, I went up to the person in the fair and I said, okay, who's responsible to make sure there's no money laundering in 
mortgage credit and federal mortgage credit in the United States. So we went through all the databases and everything, and it came out that the Assistant Secretary of Housing was. And I said, well, you know, that's really interesting because I just finished being the Assistant Secretary of Housing not that long ago, (laughs) and I didn't even know I was responsible for that, and I never heard of that. Yeah, wow. (laughs) So I guess there was no effort to prevent money laundering and mortgage credit and, and that's because the banks are, are loving it. I mean, they're, they're loving all the drug money. They're getting hundreds of billions of dollars every year that they can well, then use. I'm going to be the bad guy now. It's not just the banks. It's uh-huh. everybody. Oh. So uh, I've, tried, you know, I've tried to engage with people in local communities about backing the drug money out. And you know, the first problem is they're all afraid because we're dealing with a group of people who now have the power to kill with impunity sure. and are above the law. But the, you know, so that's problem number one. But problem number two is we we as an economy have become dependent on this model. So I tell the story of, I was speaking at a wonderful conference called Spiritual Frontiers Foundation that has a conference once a year to talk about how they as a group can help our society evolve spiritually. And a friend of mine asked me to give him a speech called How the Money Works on Organized Crime. And so I was in the middle of the speech talking about the fact that the Department of Justice had just told a reporter that that the U.S. financial system launders $500 billion to a trillion dollars of all dirty money, including narcotics trafficking. So I said to this wonderful group of spiritually evolved people, what would happen if we stopped? They said, well, you know, the stock market would go down because that money would go abroad and, <laughs> and we'd have trouble financing the government deficit. I said, okay, well, let's pretend there's a big red button up here on the lectern. If you push that button, you can stop all hard narcotics trafficking in America and in your county, in your community tomorrow, thus offending the people who control $500 billion to a trillion dollars a year of all dirty money and the accumulated capital thereon, who here will push the button? And out of 100 people dedicated to evolving our society spiritually, only one would put the, push the button. I said, why, do you, why would you not push the button? The other 99 said, we don't want our government checks to stop, we don't want our taxes to go up, and we don't want um, you know, our mutual funds to go down in value. Huh. So... The addiction. Everybody's tied money. into it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. We are all. This is all very integrated. This has been going on for decades. This mm-hmm. has all evolved to a very fine-tuned system of sort of optimizing political preferences. And what I discovered that day, which and this is the most important thing, is is that the reason no one, you know, the the thing that had us frozen was not our dependency on the money. The reason that had us frozen was our inability to talk about it and feel safe talking about it. Because, in fact, what, what was happening was the equity value of our economies was being liquidated, just like, you know, drugs liquidate our body. Um, dirty money liquidates the real healthy equity part of the economy, including the environment. And so, uh, you know, it puts the wrong sort of people in control. And so yeah. we need to talk about this, and we need to find a way to talk about it without fear. Well, this is fascinating, Catherine, because you're talking about two, well, two things at least. It's that, it's that drug money and our economy are, are inextricably intertwined here, and it's resulting basically so that the whole system is set up uh, so that our communities are, are going to be devolving, essentially. I mean, these people are making money out of destroying our communities, essentially. What, we're being harvested, and what is really Wow, that's quite a statement, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, we're being harvested. Yeah. And the, the, the amazing thing to see is if you look at how much wealth is being sucked out, uh, it really speaks to the enormous wealth of the American people and, and the American environment and natural resources. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. And the technology. And so, you know, the, the, 
the bad news about facing all of this is, is, of course, it's very depressing. The good news is what you realize, and that's what from, from 1997 on, uh, no, it's 96, I became an enormous optimist because we, at Hamilton, we built these databases that would show us how the money worked by place, and we were able to simulate, well, what if people were able to just re-optimize in a way that supported freedom, that supported community, that supported productivity? What if we really had markets instead of economic warfare? Right. And the numbers were so enormous of what could be possible. You know, if you just let capital flow to small business based on economic competitiveness, oh, my, you just wouldn't believe right. it. Well, I and mean, I looked at it, and I said, I- I've been laughing ever since. Yeah. Because <laughs> there is, you know, there's plenty of money, but if we run the economy to control, you know, it, then it's going to, then it's going to, spiral down. If we run it to optimize, then it's going to spiral up. And it, it's all there to be done, but first we have to face the collective madness of what we're doing. Yeah. I, this is the Main Street versus Wall Street thing, right? I mean, the, the money's going through Wall Street, the drug money, uh, the, the laundered money, the, the fraudulent money is going through Wall Street instead of uh, getting back into our local communities and, okay, so and funding me, small businesses here. Let me just make a plug for Wall Street. Okay, go okay. for it. Or, or <laughs> good luck. You know, we, we need we need the the one percent versus ninety nine percent frame is not to me. I'm not, it, it doesn't work mm-hmm. because if you look at the evilness of what we're doing, it threads throughout everybody. Okay, it, it's okay. not. We're all. We're all in this, you know, this is like a, a big we, and we need to take responsibility. Right. So, so Well, sh- surely you can blame the leadership, though. I mean, these people have been kind of building, they've been building the system behind our backs. I think a lot of, I mean, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show, I'm gonna, is to educate I'm, people about this. There's nobody who's had a greater, you know, if you look at my enemy of the state experience of right. trying to hold the leadership accountable or promote good leadership. Yeah. You know, so so all the evilness at the top I know about and whatever, but I I have spent more time trying to unpack the evilness in the middle at the bottom, and I can assure you that there is as much push for a lot of this corruption coming up as there is coming down. So so wow. let me give you an example. I was uh, at a I'm a Christian. I was at a Christian revival in 2000. Um, T.D. Jakes in Atlanta, and one of my pastors was there who's African-American. She used to work for DEA. There's nothing about drug running, um, you know, uh, Bush or allegations related to Bush family, uh, Clinton family that she doesn't know. So, so the pastor is from, T.D. Jakes is from Dallas, and he brings in uh, George W. Bush, this is during the election year, on monitor, and 100,000 African-American women jump up, you know, clapping for George W. Bush, uh-huh. including my pastor. And afterwards, I said to her, wait a minute, you know, I just risked my entire life, my for- I've lost my fortune trying to protect communities from this kind of fraud and all the stuff the Bush family is doing. And, and you never jumped up and clapped for me, but you jumped up and clapped for, for him. And she said, well, he's going to be the winner. And I said, so he's a winner and I'm a loser. And she said, yeah, that's right. Oh, wow. But, but that's... The crowd follows the guy who wins, and the, and traditionally in America, the guy who wins is the guy who pulls off the dirty tricks. Yeah, and that's the person who has our support. Mm. And and I have seen decade after decade, you know, all, all this Republican versus Democrat stuff is yeah, yeah. Because if you look at the Republicans and Democrats, they're both doing it, 
And, you know, but I, I hear thousands of rationalizations from everybody about why it's okay because they're a Democrat or why it's okay because they're Republican. You know, yeah. th- there is th- the thing we most have to face. If we just sit around and say the 1% bad, let's kill them. We're going to get trapped in a dead end again, and the guys on the top are going to win because, you know, we'll take out their phony fronts and go back to the same system. So we literally, we need to take responsibility because that's how you get power. When I see my own complicity in this, when I see my community's complicity in this, that's how I can start to shut off being tricked and get my power back. Right. Well, what do you think the best way is for communities to to get themselves off the habit, if you will? Well, the first thing is to to really sit down, and of course you've got to you've got to break this down sequentially because the problem in America is everybody's being drained. We're watching our incomes sort of go down, our expenses go up, and it's I call mm-hmm. it the slow burn. And this is by design. I mean, you can see oh yeah the people on the top are making this happen. They're lowering right. our standard of living. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, and some of them would argue, well, this is what we're doing to protect the environment. We're lowering your footprint. You know, so uh-huh. it's, it's, you know, there are different arguments to be made on all sides. But so, so the first thing we've got to do is say, how do I use my time this week? Not in general, this week. Over the next week, how do I use my time? And how can I start using my time to, to, to get away from the things that are cheating me, lying to me, you know, whatever, and, and how can I get away from the institutions? So for heaven's sakes, if you're banking with one of the banks that's doing all this fraud, get out. You don't want them right. to have your data. You don't want to depend on them. You want to get into, you know, I bank at one of the smallest, greatest community banks in the world. It's wonderful to have people you like and admire and trust be your bankers. Then if you have a problem, you need information, you can call, you know, there's a relationship. Mm-hmm. So, 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 you know, so switch that. Look at where you're buying your food. The most important thing for health is to have good food and water. Are there local farmers? Is there a farmer's market? Are there ways, uh, you know, is there a CSA? Is there a way of getting local food, particularly where you are? I mean, there's just wonderful, wonderful stuff going mm-hmm. on. So, so, so look at your, where am I spending my time? Who am I associating with? And where am I spending my transactions, whether it's your purchases, your banking, your investments, you want to start getting away from anything that is corrupt or unhealthy towards things that are healthy. And as people right. shift that, it can be enormous. So let me give you an example. Okay. Um, if, if you shift your money, let's say everybody in your county shifts their money out of the big banks to the local banks that are well-governed and do a lot more to promote local economy, that can have an enormous swing, particularly if lots and lots of people do it, mm-hmm. because there's a multiplier effect that deleverages the, the guys who are doing the corrupt stuff, particularly the big guys, because they leverage the money so much, and then it leverages it back into the community, and that puts more money. So, so you're constantly trying to shift money. Now, it's not just shifting it from big to small, because you're trying to decentralize it. It's shifting it from corrupt to, to, to not corrupt. So you're going to have small businesses locally that are very corrupt. They're sort of, you know, the local distributor for what I call the tapeworm. Uh-huh. You're going to have others that are wonderful. So they may not be local. They may be on their network. They may be in the next county. But you want everything you do, you want to ask yourself, is this wealth building and is this decentralizing? And, and if we can start now, if you can start to find ways of getting together with other people to talk about where the opportunities are for collaboration, 
So one of the things I encourage people to do is, you know, have a night once, once a month or once a week where you get together and watch a documentary. And, you know, there are all sorts of wonderful documentaries to help about going local or food or other things. And then talk about how, what could you do to help um, to build community with each other that would save you time or make you money. And, you know, start small. So, so step one is just going through my transactions and my time and saying, how can I save time and lower risk by getting away from the bad guys? And then you start to collaborate out. But you have to do it in a way that's fun. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, can you uh, discuss maybe the role of, say, our county government? What can county and local governments do to, to get themselves uh, away from the corrupt system and uh, start a, a more of a community-oriented financial system going on here locally? That's an excellent question. The first thing you need to do is get together and make sure you have a great sheriff. And he's, if he's not a great sheriff, you need to vote in a, a, you know, a good sheriff. Uh-huh. Because the sheriff is actually a very powerful person, even when it comes to confronting the federal government, right? They, have, they have a lot of power, yeah. Right. Unbelie- within the sheriff's jurisdiction, he can tell the federal government, no, you may not come in and you may not do this. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable powers under the Constitution. Yeah, we're having the issue right now with this whole medical marijuana situation where the feds have come in. So uh, it, it's definitely pertinent, you know. Absolutely. So you, you want an excellent sheriff. You want excellent communication between the sheriff and the people, and you want to support your local sheriff. Mm-hmm. You know, because he's got to pick his shots. But throughout America, it's really amazing. The sheriff has one budget and, you know, sort of one allocation of time, him and his deputies, and the question is, is he going to protect the people or is he going to process foreclosures? So, right. so is the sheriff working for the banks or is the sheriff working for the people? And given that most, a lot of the mortgage defaults were fraudulent inducement, you know, that's a very important question. So number one, get a good sheriff. Number two, you want to be active. Uh, I, every four years, I die inside as I watch Americans spend an enormous amount of time and money on the presidential election and ignore their local elections. Right. It's totally outrageous. Right. Well, the way they control the federal government is one county at a time, bottom-up. Mm-hmm. And, and so if we ignore bottom-up and then just go pay attention to the national elections, then we'll... You know, we'll spend all of our time and money sort of choosing between attack poodles at the federal level and never get down to the, to the base of power. So, so be involved in your local elections and be in communication with the people who represent you. So, for example, <laughs> you know, I just have to brag on him. I have a mayor in Hickory Valley, Tennessee, who's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Just fantastic. We, you go to our city council meeting and everybody gets together and they review the bills and then they pay them. We have no staff. Our, our reserves are maybe 10-plus multiples of our annual budget. Wow. It's amazing. And we had a terrible snowstorm last. The, our mayor runs an electrical and plumbing company, among other things. He also runs the Hickory Valley Cotton Gin. And uh, the snowstorm took the electricity down, so the mayor got out his team and, you know, went and got the electricity going again in the middle of the night. <laughs> so, so, you know, but, but the c- communication between him and everybody in the town is superb. Part of it is he's just a great mayor. But the other thing is we know, you know, if he needs something, you know, if, if, if Ricky Ayers asked me to do something, I'm going to do it. I don't even need him to explain. I'm going to do it. So, so you need that kind of connection and communication. Yeah. And um, the pressure on municipal officials, whether county or, or city or town, to sort of go along with the federal government is growing and is terrible. And there's no way they can stop that or change that without real local support, and it's critical. Right. And I'll tell you why. 
the, the biggest thing hurting the local economy right now is federal rules. So I'm from Tennessee. We have thousands of federal and state rules related to protecting large aggregate business interests that are shutting down thousands of farms or have shut down thousands of farms. In Tennessee, you change the rules on chicken. You change the rules on milk to something that is more safe and more healthy, and suddenly you have thousands of small farms that can operate very productively economically. And I think the time has come for trench warfare on those things, and that's going to happen at the municipal and state level. What about uh, when county governments are taking, I mean, they're taking money. This is how the rules kind of make their way in, right? You take a, a, a big federal grant, but you have to follow this list of rules. Is it, uh, it going to be part of this movement where county officials are going to have to stop accepting a lot of this state and federal funding for things? Well, what, what has happened what has been as the feds take more and more money out of the place, the way they get buy-in politically is to feed back more and more grants. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the sources and uses of government funds within a place, what you see is we're sending all the money up to Washington, and then it's trickling back. With, with and, this set of rules that we have to follow now, right? Right. Well, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a control mechanism. So we yeah. get you, and, and it's very bad, because if you look at sources and uses of, of, of all sorts of resources, including government resources, at a county-by-county county level, we now have the entire... As, as the economy has been enervated, the dependence on government money has gone up, 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 both in households and in businesses and in, in local government and in corporations. So, you know, the defense contractor problem in Washington is paralleled by all sorts of subsidies and, and, and household checks locally. Um, and, and, and that makes everybody financially dependent on this war machine, which is now very global. So, so a lot of this comes down to, is there a way to get off of that, get off of things that depend on government money, and get into things that are equity-based? So it's a matter of getting out of a debt-based economy into an equity-based, and by equity-based, I mean something that someone, individuals will pay each other to do that, you know, that is economic. So mm-hmm. that one of the reasons I keep coming back to food is food is something that we all need, we all want, and many, many communities in America could grow much more of their own food, and, and not just more, but be healthy. So right. let, me, let me take this back to food stamps for a second. If you look at the dependency uh, throughout America on food stamps in Tennessee, it's almost up to 25% of the population. Wow. We're sitting there with, with farmland lying fallow, people not doing farms because of the rules and it's not economic, but we're shipping in you know, hundreds of millions, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of uh, foods from Latin America and far, far away, you know, that are making money for the big corporations. Got to change. <laughs> and it's not, if you, if you look at the economics, government, you know, and you'll see the same thing in data servicing, government is paying somebody $50,000 a year not to, or spending $50,000 a year for that person not to work and be in HUD housing with unemployment checks and food stamps. At the same time, they're shipping um, government data over to India where J.P. Morgan Chase is doing the data servicing for the food stamp program. Well, it's, sure. it's not economic. Right. I mean, that's the, the issue here is that it's just not productive when right. you send your money to Washington and then you get it back. It's a, it's a lose, lose situation. It's not an efficient system. Well, the way to change it is to jump in with the county officials, do a sources and uses of flows in your county, and go back to the federal government and say, wait a minute, we can get, you know, two... Instead of spending $250,000 for a HUD 
public housing, we can get five houses for the price of one, give us a waiver, and let us re-engineer within this place. Right. I mean, there are ways that it could work, but yeah. it's just so corrupt right now that, that uh, the system oh, is dragging no. us all down. You, you, can, you can change this. If you could get a real consensus between local citizens and county officials, you could get those waivers. There's precedent for getting those waivers. Because a government official, and this is a typical HUD story, because we found neighborhoods where you could do five single-family homes out of the foreclosed properties instead of one public housing. And I took it to somebody at HUD, and she said, but how could we generate fees for our friends? Right. And, 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 but the reality is a government official can't say, no, I want to spend 250000 for one home when I could get five homes for the same price because blah, blah, blah. You bring that kind of data and, and local consensus for re-engineering the money in this environment, you're going to get it done. Well, Catherine, I, we got it's 10 o'clock right now, so I'm afraid we're out of time. We got Bye. about 10% of the way through my outline. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No, it's, it's great. I'm glad we got all the information uh, that we can get out of you here in this hour. And uh, I would definitely love to talk to you sometime again in the future. I, I'm going to drop you an email this afternoon just okay. to, to see if, if you're interested well, in I'm that. I'm coming out to California, and you know, I have an office out there now, so maybe I'll come up to Mendocino. It's beautiful up here. It's a, it's a great weekend spot. Okay. Have a great day. All right. Thanks a lot, Catherine. I'll talk to you soon. All right. And that was Catherine Austin Fitz right here on the Thursday Morning Report. You've been listening here on KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits and Ukiah, 88.1 FM Fort Bragg. I've been your host. My name is Doug McKenty. I'll be back again in two weeks' time. And there you have it. That was a blast from the past. I think I did that uh, episode in 2012. That was the first time that I spoke with Catherine Austin Fitz. I've talked to her a number of times over the years. She's an incredible woman uh, with a lot of knowledge. So I hope you enjoyed that interview. Uh, just to get a taste, she's still cranking away, producing the Solari Report uh, quarterly. And uh, well worth the read. She's really on top of her game, and she's uh, a woman with a lot of uh, information. So hope you check it out. And uh, just to pitch the shift one more time, I'm kicking it in uh, again full-time and uh, with monetization. So for the full feature-length interviews that I'm about to start producing uh, here in the present day, please go to www.theshiftnow.com and click the subscribe button. I'll also be up on patreon.com backslash the shift with Doug McKenty. You'll be able to subscribe there as well. Uh, all the new stuff and, and my old stuff will be posted up there. Also, I was actually thinking about taking the older stuff down and only giving those full length features uh, to subscribers um, but I'm thinking now I'm going to go ahead and keep those up. I mean, the point is really to get the word out, right? So hopefully if you're listening and you want to support the show uh, for 6 bucks a month, you can go to www.theshiftnow.com, click on the subscribe button, and uh, start getting the new content uh, plus the members-only forum. Uh, really part of this is uh, for the $6 a month, I'm really thinking of that as becoming like a core group of organizers uh, I have some history with political organizing here in Northern California, and I'd like to start to extend that to the SHIFT community. So developing this community uh, and becoming more politically organized is very important to me, so that's part of what I'll be doing if you do become uh, a permanent or a member of the SHIFT family, then that'll be happening. Also, 
patreon.com backslash the shift with Doug McKenty. And um, please don't hesitate to get in touch with me on the website where you can email me McKenty the shift, M-C-K-E-N-T-Y, the shift at gmail.com with any questions, comments, uh, or any ideas about what I could do to uh, either improve the free content or to add uh, a better experience for the members and the subscribers. Um, so again, hope you enjoyed this conversation with Catherine Austin Fitz, and I will have a lot more coming your way of some of these older uh, Thursday morning reports that I did here on KZYX Mendocino County Public Radio uh, a few years back. So enjoy and take care. Stay healthy, everybody.